history of God's work and redemption in Israel. And uh, we, we've talked about, we've started with Abraham and Isaac and, and we've talked about David and we, yes, last week we, we got to uh, Israel uh, going into exile in 586 B.C. Um, and then returning uh, in, in five, around 530 B.C. under a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Um, and, uh, and Zerubbabel brought the people back and he was a descendant of David. And they they came to they came back to Jerusalem and they reestablished themselves under Persian rule. And when we we're in Matthew, we get this last bit of the the genealogies, the the people, all the predecessors of Christ, beginning in chapter one and verse twelve. After the deportation or the exile to Babylon, Yechoniah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father uh, of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Yaakov, or Jacob, Yaakov, the father of Yosef, or Joseph, the husband, or the man of Mary, uh, of whom Jesus was born, or Yeshua was born, who is called Meshiach or Christos, all right, the anointed one. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And we've talked a lot about um, Abraham and the covenant that God made. Uh, with the people of Israel, that he would love them and, and he would protect them and he, they would be his people. And we talked about David, the king, and, and the failures of David's life and how God still calls him a man after his own heart, still uses his son Solomon to establish a kingdom. We talked about Zerubbabel who emerges from the ashes of Israel's uh, judgment, Judah's judgment for their, their failure, for their idolatry. But there's a period of history when we, we really don't talk about, in, the, in, in most uh, Bible commentaries we refer to them as the silent years, the time period between uh, kind of the exile and the temple in Jerusalem around 500, 400 B.C. Um, and the time of Jesus. Um, and if you're not careful, you get this idea that God was not at work. He just kind of bailed on people and just kind of let them drift and there was a lot that happened in that time period. Uh, the Persian Empire, which had conquered literally from the Hindus River uh, all the way to the Nile and all the way to the borders of Greece. The great Achaemenid Persian Empire that spanned the satraps and the rulers. You can read about it in, in Esther. And there's just this massive bureaucracy, this huge government ruling basically a third of the world's population. The Persian Empire lasts for a little while, but eventually it falls uh, to a black swan. Now, those of you that are going into Aperture will learn all about black swans. A black swan is something that is so improbable that when it happens, it catches everybody off guard. And history has had one mega black uh, black swan, and that was a guy named Alexander of Macedon. A kid 
literally 20 years old, who leads the armies of Macedon to conquer the entire known world by the time he is 30 years old. Alexander of Macedon is one of the most fascinating human beings you can ever read about. A man who by sheer force of will and intellect and genius defeated every comer. He never lost a battle. He only stopped conquering the world because by the time he got to India, his soldiers had been away for so long they forgot what home looked like and they said to him, not a step forward further we're going home alexander was possibly the greatest military genius that ever walked the face of the earth if you want to read about just an innovative creative thinker a guy who just did not play by the rules you have to read about alexander of macedon by the way he has a relatively famous uh teacher Alexander of Macedon's tutor was Aristotle, the great philosopher. Um, That's how brilliant Alexander is, that the greatest philosopher of all time was his elementary school tutor. He died of a fever in his 30s, weeping in the fields, drunk, because he could not conquer. There were no worlds left to conquer. But Alexander the Great swept through the Persian Empire, And conquered everything in front of him. And when he got to Jerusalem where the Jews were, the Jewish Jewish high priests literally just threw the doors open. They said, we're not even going to try to fight you. Come on in. And with Alexander came power and wealth and came connectiveness. Alexander lives a short life when he dies. Four of his generals start to fight over. He has a couple of kids. They immediately kill them. Um, and they, and they, these four generals start fighting over the, the world and they split it up. But they create what we call the Hellenistic Age. A period where literally half of the population of the world spoke Greek. There's Greek architecture and Greek buildings and Greek language as far to the east as as Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and even western China. There's Greek uh, Greek materials found all the way to the Straits of Gibraltar and into into India and down the coast of Greece, the Greek world just or down the coast of Africa, Greek spread out across the entire world. And right in the middle of that Greek world was a little group of Jews living in a little hill country centered in Jerusalem. Just trying to make do. Just trying to... Be quiet, Siri. I didn't ask you. Just trying trying to... I reset my watch. Now all my stuff is being weird. Um, Just trying to make do a little country in a big, big world. And into that world, a prophet speaks. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, this prophet. If you're in the book of Matthew, you go back like two pages literally and you'll encounter the book of Malachi. Malachi. We don't know exactly when Malachi is written. Um, there's no real markers in it to tell us what was going on at the time. 
but it is written to the people of Israel in this time period of exile and darkness. Maybe during the Persian period, maybe during the Greek period, we don't really know. But God delivers an oracle to his people. A people who thought they were everything. They were God's people. They were unbeatable. They were unstoppable. They, they lived on their hilltop fortress in Jerusalem for centuries and they were untouchable. And then they got conquered and they got overthrown and, and they were imprisoned and exiled. And now they've returned as, as essentially um, the border patrol. They've been sent to the edge of the Persian Empire and told, yeah, go ahead and build a wall. Nobody really cares about you guys. We don't care what you do. Just make sure you send in your taxes and you'll be fine. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And the very first line of this, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? I, I, I had a conversation this week about, about the heart of God, about God being heartbroken over the sin and destruction of our world. We so often see God as cold and clinical and removed. Zeus on his, on, his, uh, on his throne. You know, essentially we see God as Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial. Sitting up high on his big thing, looking down, not really noticing all of the little things that are going on in our lives. Made of granite, made of marble, immovable. And while God is unchangeable, and God is immutable uh, from, from a theological point of view. He also reveals himself to be emotional. To have love. To, to be frustrated. To have hate. To forgive. By the way, we should be thankful that God is emotional because forgiveness is an emotional thing. And without God having, feeling the need to forgive us in and of himself... We would not be forgiven. I have loved you. And I want you to read that line as the voice of a father or a, a friend or even a husband who has had his heart broken. I have loved you. And they say to him, how have you loved us? And this, this line, I'm not going to get into all this, but is not Esau Jacob's brother? In other words, well, look what happened to the other people you said you loved. Why should we believe you that you love us? Why should we, why should we take it seriously? God says you could have had love, but they don't believe that God really loves them. Then further down in chapter six, or chapter one and verse six, again, this is God speaking. He says, A son honors his father, a servant honors his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? 
A heartbroken God who says, I had love for you and you wouldn't take it. A heartbreaking, broken God who says, I want to have a relationship with you. Where, where's, where's the honor due to a father? Where, where's, the, where's the respect due to me as your God? And they say, well, how have we disrespected you? How have we done that? They could have had love, but they won't let God love them. They could have been protected by a God who only asked them to honor him and fear him as their God. And he would have protected them. But they despised him. Look a little bit further as we scroll down. Verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Every place incense will be offered to my name. A pure offering. This is God saying this is what should be. My name will be great among the nations, said the Lord. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its fruit, may be despised. You say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Instead, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand? God says, all I asked of you was to give me what I've given you. And instead, you bring me the dregs. Instead, you offer me the, the empty offerings. You, you do the bare minimum for me. And remember, this is not God being angry. This is a heartbroken God. Imagine a relationship between you and a friend. Um, How many of you have outside cats? You're going to know immediately what I'm talking about. Um, When you give a cat food and veterinary care and a place to live and a warm space... Because a cat doesn't know any better. What does a cat give you in return? Dead rodents. And a cat thinks that that is the greatest offering it could possibly give you. And when you look at it, I mean, how many of you have ever done this with the shovel and gone, thank you, Frisky? We expect that from a cat. But if our children did that, we would have serious questions. Because our children know what to bring us. Now, on the other side, when your spouse comes to you and offers you, I don't actually know what kind of jewelry people give. Is a tennis bracelet a thing? Okay, good. All right. Doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. Um, Your spouse brings you a beautiful tennis bracelet. You go, oh, that's lovely. That's beautiful. Thank you. You showed me how much love you gave me. But when your kid comes to you and brings you a drawing of you with eyes on the sides of your head, but it, it, it shows them hugging you, that's just as beautiful, isn't it? It's just as wonderful. It's just so, you're like, oh, the expression of love that is, it's everything that you, you're giving me everything. You're telling me how much you love me. I love this. And God, a heartbroken God, goes to a nation that he's given everything, given his covenant, given it his grace, given it his scriptures, given his spirit. And they come back to him and they hand him dead rodents. 
Now that's good enough for you. They show no respect to their God. Chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, and this is, uh, I think this is actually Malachi kind of inserting into the conversation, but, um, but then God steps in and says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Why isn't, why, they're sitting, God won't take our offerings. We're trying to persuade God to do stuff for us. We've given him a dirty rat, we've given him a dirty squirrel, we've given him, and he's not accepting anything. Why? Because that is not what he expects from his children. It's what he expects from his beasts, but not from his children. We're giving God, these, these people of Israel, they were giving God what they felt God deserved in their own way of thinking, rather than what God truly deserved as their God. He calls them faithless. He says, you... This is, the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, verse 14, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He's saying, you've, you've broken the covenant. Israel has shattered the covenant that God made with them, just like they shatter marriage covenants, just like they they break things apart. In chapter three, verse six, he said, uh, "Chapter three, verse six, I, the Lord, do not change. You, O children of Israel, are not consumed. He says, it's a good thing I don't, I haven't just blown you up." But from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes, and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse. Now I know many, plenty of pastors that use this to beat people over the head and say, put money in the offering plate. I'm not going to go there. Because that's the point of this was he says to them, I gave you 110% so that you could give me 10 and still have everything I provided for you. And what did you do, Israel? You wrapped it all up and kept it for yourself and you threw me a couple of flecks and you gave me the worst. So you went through the grain. You're supposed to take the top of the grain, the top 10%, the first 10%, the best 10%, and you're supposed to give that to me to provide for the people. By the way, the tithe usually was eaten by the people. It wasn't like squirreled away somewhere for God. It was sanctified and then they made a feast out of it. 
Um, and so you were supposed to take the best, the 10%, you were supposed to do that. And instead, you went to the bottom of the silos. You got all the moldy, mildewy stuff that was left over from a few years before. And you measured it out till it was about equal to the 10%. And you gave me that. A heartbroken God. Over and over and over again. Hurt and harmed. He tries to give love. They reject it. He tries to. He wants them to honor him. They dishonor him. He wants them to fear him. They ridicule him. He wants them to honor their covenants. Instead, they're faithless. He wants them to give what he is owed. Instead, they give the worst that they could possibly give. Oh, and by the way, in chapter 13, when God diagnoses all of this, chapter, four, chapter 3 and verse 14, when he says this is the situation, they all go, your words have been hard against us. Why are you so mean, God? Chapter 3 and verse 16. But those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine. In that day when I take up, make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. An entire nation turns their back on God, gives him every reason in his heartbrokenness to lash out against them and destroy every single one of them. There is no reason for Christmas to come. There is no reason for Jesus to step foot on earth and redeem these people who have rejected him, who in their journey for their own advancement have pushed down every aspect of what God should be to them. They deserve nothing from their God. But a heartbroken God keeps his eyes open for those who are looking for him. He is unwilling to destroy an entire nation when one or two might hear his voice and remember. He is unwilling to wipe out an entire family when one might strive to love the Lord their God. Because our God is not angry. He is grieving over the sin of mankind. I believe with all my heart that there is a tear in the eye of God when the unrighteous are condemned to eternity in the lake of fire. 
He doesn't do it with glee and joy. It is his desire and his hope that his creation be with him. And he has done everything conceivable to call us to him. He wades through the will through the filth of our sin. He he shines through the darkness of our death. He breaks through the scars and the wounds and the scabs and the pus of all that humanity pours out on itself. And he calls us to just love him because he loves us. Where did Christianity lose its way when it stopped being about the heartbroken God and it started about the punisher writ large? I would ask you, friends, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, you have benefited from the infinite largesse of a God who loves you more than you could ever love Him. Never forget that. If you are not a Christian this morning, you are still trying to figure all of this out. I would ask you to consider what it means for God's heart to break over you. Is it not enough that the creator of the universe loves you? Is that not enough for you to call him Lord? Is it not enough that God refuses to give up on you? Every one of us here who calls themselves a Christian knows if God had given up, we would have long since died. But He does not give up on us. He does not stop. He does not sleep. And He is not hunting us. He is longing for us to turn to Him. Would you turn your face to Him today? Follower of Christ, who are, you, maybe you're hardened and, and locked down and your faith is settled and still and it doesn't need to be challenged anymore. Would you turn your face to Him so that His infinite love would melt your stubborn heart? seeker and explorer and person still on the journey trying to decide whether this Jesus thing and God thing is enough for you. All I can tell you is that God loves you. He does not want where you are going to be where you go. You say, I'm a good person. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you're fairly good. If you're not perfect, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none of us that is good enough, righteous enough to earn God's favor. But a heartbroken God is waiting for you to love you, to redeem you, to renew you, to restore you, to transform you, to give you hope, 
to give you joy, to let you know He loved you so much that He, the Son, was willing to come and dwell among among us and live among us and die for our sins that we might call Him our Lord and Savior. And I'd invite you, if you're still on the precipice, to take the step, to step forward and follow the One whose heart will eternally be broken for you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Only your love can save us, God. Manifest in Jesus. Incarnate through a child in a way we cannot understand. Living a life dying and raised again in a way we cannot understand. And now seated on your right hand and soon to return in a way that we cannot understand. Help us as followers of Christ to have your broken heart for those who turn against you, who oppose you. It is easy for us to be friends with our friends. It is hard for us to love our enemies. But that's what you did for us. And that's what you call us to do. And may your heart call to those who have not yet come to faith. May they hear. May they turn. May they follow you. We all pray all this, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, in your name, by your Holy Spirit, to God our Father. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace and be